Well, good morning. We're in Luke chapter 22 this morning. We're nearing the end of the book, which means we're nearing the end of this part of Christ's story. And that is since Luke chapter 9, he's been headed towards Jerusalem. It says in Luke chapter 9, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And that's where he's been heading. And now he's there. He's been teaching in the temple. The religious leaders are infuriated with him. And uh, he has one last meal. He has one last meal that he wants to celebrate with his disciples. Sometimes we call this fellowship, communion, uh, we, we call it the Lord's Supper. And it was because it was the last supper that he had with his disciples. It was when he transformed the supper that's often known as Passover into something that Christians have observed for nearly two millennia now. So I want to walk us through that passage this morning where Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples. It's a little bit of a complicated story in the sense that there are emotions that are probably going in all different directions. As he sits there with his disciples, there are things that are happening behind the scenes. There are hearts that are going this way and that. And yet Jesus is there with his disciples and he's teaching them about the end of his life. You know, as I thought about our text this morning, I wondered if maybe we gather some Sunday mornings and our hearts are going every which way too. This way or that. Maybe, maybe this past week we've been deniers of Jesus. Or maybe we've turned away from him in some way. Maybe we've struggled to believe what he says, or perhaps we don't feel as close to him as we wish. I think all of those kind of things were swirling around in this text. Would you follow along, please, as I read from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 38. When I finish verse 38, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Please follow along as I read. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. And agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread. On which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup when he had given thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be who, would, who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon. Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, Peter said to him. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death, Jesus said. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. He said to him, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and look into this text. Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word. There's this ordinance we call communion that we celebrate often. And yet today we have the opportunity in the life of Jesus to see where it originated And why? And so I ask that you would deepen the meaning of our gathering around the table. That it would not be a mere ritual once a month or a couple times a month that we celebrate, but rather it would be meaningful to us as a memorial of your death in our place. As something that nourishes our hearts afresh, that the gospel, the good news, is that you, Father, loved sinners and sent your Son 
to die in our place. So we ask that that would warm our hearts this morning as we consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our text begins with an interesting note about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' life at this point. You'll notice how in verse number one, it simply says this. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So you have to picture Jerusalem buzzing with preparation for this significant Jewish holiday. It looked back, I mean, when you think Passover, you think the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you have to think about the Israelites looking back to a time when they were enslaved in Egypt. On the night of the first Passover, back in Egypt, on the night of that first Passover, the angel of death, swept through the land of Goshen in Egypt. The angel of death killed the firstborn of every family that night. That is, of course, unless they had the blood of a lamb smeared on the lintel and doorposts of their home. If the death angel saw the blood, it would, what? Pass over that home, and lives would be spared. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 12 through 14. It's the early story of redemption, the greatest work of God's deliverance. It was the final of 10 plagues that it ultimately pried Pharaoh's hand open, and finally he was willing to let God's people go. When grief struck the Egyptians over the great loss that they experienced of their firstborns being killed, the Israelites needed to leave in haste. So they couldn't wait for their bread to rise. Have you ever made homemade bread? And I see my daughters do this. You know, they, they make the dough and then it sits in this, this bowl and then they watch it kind of get bigger and bigger and then they beat it down and then they watch it get bigger and bigger. And they do this thing and it takes, you know, a good part of the day. Listen, the Israelites didn't have time to leaven the loaves of bread and watch it grow. They had to just bake it and leave. And so they ate unleavened bread. And so the feast of unleavened bread was the reminder of how they had to leave Egypt in haste. And the Passover was the reminder that the death angel came upon Egypt. But when the death angel saw the blood of a lamb, It passed over, and lives were spared. This was a work of redemption for the people of Israel. This was a work of rescue and deliverance. And you have to think, when this opening verse here in chapter 22, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, you have to think about all of these Jews getting ready for this huge feast For this time to commemorate how the death angel passed over when it saw the blood. How they left Egypt in haste and ate unleavened bread. Now, let me explain how all of this would have played out in the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time. What would have happened is preparations would have been made for this special feast. 
And that included like roads in the city being repaired. You know, when, I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about when, when the Olympics came here, uh, you know, to Salt Lake City. I, I heard about this. I didn't live here at the time, but I heard about this. I mean, all the infrastructure stuff's getting fixed and things are being beautified and people are getting ready in the city for the whole world to see this. Well, when you picture Jerusalem, you have to picture they're fixing the roads. They're repairing bridges to make sure they're safe. There were people outside along the roads where these tombs were, where people were buried, and they would freshly whitewash the tombs And do you know why they did that? Because they didn't want any travelers, these pilgrims coming in from far away, to accidentally touch them and become unclean for Passover. And so roads are being fixed, bridges repaired, tombs are being freshly whitewashed. For the month leading up to Passover, if you were a Jew and attended synagogue, you would hear the same story for the whole month leading up to Passover. It would be the story of the Exodus. In synagogue, every week they'd be telling about God's great deliverance of his people out of the hand of the Egyptians. They'd be talking about God's great redemptive work of bringing his people out of Egypt for a whole month in the synagogues. Then, two days prior to Passover, do you know what all the Jews would be doing in their homes? Two days prior to Passover, they would scour their homes, top to bottom, every nook and cranny, and they would look for any leaven in their home, and they would throw it out. There was actually a symbolic ceremony where they would light a candle, and they would go around, like the whole house had to be quiet. So all the kids in here, imagine gathering with your family upstairs The lights are out and there's a candle and dad takes the candle and says, shh. And all the kids stood there quietly. Dad takes the candle and he goes around to each of the rooms. Nope, no leaven in here. And then goes to the next room. Nope, no leaven in here. And he would scour the house like that. And that would happen two days before Passover. Now, when Passover came, Every Israelite male that lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem was by law required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And so you imagine there are these pilgrims coming everywhere from 15 miles around. All these men are coming. But it wasn't just the men who were required to come. You have to realize that in the hearts of all of the Jews, they longed at least once to celebrate Passover In Jerusalem. Do you know that today, like today, if you have Jewish friends who celebrate Passover, they will end the Passover meal with a prayer. It happens today. Do you know what they say at the end of Passover today? They say, next year in what? Jerusalem. Like that's the heart of the people. And so many, even if they didn't live within 15 miles, many still came to Jerusalem. You have to understand this opening verse is telling us this was a very important feast in the life of the Jews. This was a very significant celebration. Their hearts and their minds were tuned in to the historic work 
of God's redemption. Now, all of that is taking place. Not everybody understood this. Uh, I, I want to tell you about, fast forward 30 years after Jesus dies. 30 years. There's this Roman emperor. You've probably heard of him. His name was Nero. How many of you have heard of him in world history? Okay, you've heard of Nero. Nero didn't understand. I mean, he's in Rome, didn't understand what was going on in the area of Palestine. I mean, these Jews, they have feasts, festivals, whatever. Didn't understand the importance of Passover. So the governor at the time, named Cestius, was trying to persuade Nero about how important Passover was for the Jewish people. So what he did is he took a survey, a census, of how many lambs were killed during Passover, during his era. And it's recorded by the Jewish historian named Josephus. The recorded census of the number of lambs killed that particular year was 256,500 lambs. You need to pause for a second on that. 256,500 lambs killed across Jerusalem? Now, a gathering for Passover had a minimum of 10 people, which puts the population of, of Jerusalem at that time, because of pilgrims coming in from all over the place, at somewhere between 2.5 and 2.7 million. I mean, you just... I mean, I, the only thing I could think of was like the Olympics. Everybody's coming in from all over and, and the city swells. And that's what was happening here in Jerusalem. Think crowded streets. Think vendors selling their wares. You have the smell of food. People selling stuff. Spices filling the air. People squished together in these streets. Now, the Romans, they knew that Passover could be a highly volatile time, especially those who were stationed in the area. So they actually moved extra troops into Jerusalem to make sure that they could keep the peace. King Herod came from Tiberias to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he took a phone call and said, hello, this is King Herod. <laughs> no, he didn't do that. Pontius Pilate, he also came. And he arrived from Caesarea. They both came to Jerusalem during the Passover because they wanted to be there to keep the peace. Now, <clears throat> you're thinking to yourself, okay, we've got the city. It's swelling with all these people coming in from all over. Maybe this isn't the best time for the Jewish religious leaders to try to take Jesus. Maybe it's not an optimal time, but in their minds, they couldn't wait any longer. Maybe they thought that in the chaos and confusion of all of these travelers coming in and out, maybe this would be the needed distraction to remove this so-called Messiah and have him taken out once and for all. What they needed, though, and you see this in the text, what they needed was a place where they could capture him that would be quiet, a place that would be unseen. They needed someone to give up where Jesus would be, and it needed to be this place where they could capture him without a big crowd. They didn't want to stir up a riot. So look at verse number two. Verse two, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. 
So this plot begins to unfold. And you have to realize, I think this is something that the gospel writer Luke wants us to realize at this point in the story. As the plot unfolds, Luke wants us to realize who's behind all of this. You're thinking, I know who's behind it. It's the Jewish religious leader. No, 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 I know who's behind it. It's Judas. No, 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 I know who's behind it. No, look at what Luke says in our text. He tells us that it's actually Satan who has a plan of destruction. Luke wants us to be very clear here. Yes, there are these actors on the stage, but the director is Satan himself in this plot. Satan has a plan of destruction. All that unfolds here is this devilish scheme. And Luke wants us to know this. He makes a special point. He's unique in this as a gospel writer. He makes a special point here in chapter 22 to identify the mastermind behind this, the the motivating spirit behind this subversive scheme. And that is that it's the devil. You see it in verse number three. Take a look. Verse three. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. He makes sure we understand that. You go over to verse number 31. Skip over to verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. And there you could say you all, it's plural. He wants all of you disciples. So here in this text, Luke is making sure that we understand that Satan is behind all of this. We need to realize that just as God is looking for people who will be instruments of good, Satan is scouring humanity trying to find weapons of evil. And that's what's bubbling up here in the text. Now, on the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised to see the devil rear his ugly head at this point in the story. Do you remember where we saw Satan clearly earlier in the Gospel of Luke? It was in the beginning chapters. It was actually Luke chapter 4. And it's during Jesus, what? His temptation in the wilderness. Do you remember that? During Jesus' temptation, Satan is there trying to overturn our Lord, trying to get him to worship the devil. He's trying to do this, and so he tempts him, and he tempts him, and he tempts him. But after three strikes, the devil's out. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to the last last part of the sentence. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. Listen to this. Until an opportune time. So all the way back in Luke chapter 4, we get this little hint. Yes, the devil tempted him and failed and left. Only to return at an opportune time. And this was it. This was the opportune time that the devil was waiting for. He's going to enter into Judas and become the motivating and energizing power behind this betrayal. Now, I don't know how you feel about this. I mean, you get to verse number three, and you see one of Jesus' 12 disciples 
possessed by Satan himself. I mean, how do you feel about that? We've walked through the Gospel of Luke together, I mean, 22 chapters. It basically covers three years of Jesus' life and ministry. I mean, how do you feel about this guy who traveled with Jesus for three years? This guy who, listen, he saw Jesus' miracles. He was an eyewitness of those things. This guy, listen, for three years, heard the greatest preaching this world has ever known. Jesus was preaching, Judas was listening. Or maybe he wasn't. He saw the miracles. He sat in the grass when Jesus preached. He traveled with our Lord for three years. Do you remember, this is in Luke chapter 9, do you remember when the 12 disciples, it says 12 there, by the way, when the 12 disciples were sent out two by two, Judas was one of those. When Jesus gave them authority over demons and curing diseases, when he told them to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God and heal people, Judas was one of those. In other words, Judas may have come to your town and preached about the kingdom of God. Judas may have healed someone who was sick. Judas may have cast out demons. And yet here in our text, he's possessed by Satan himself. We come to realize he's a fake. I think what's so disturbing here about verse number three is that it shows us just how close a person can come to Christ and still be lost. You can be very religious. You can say all the right things. You read your Bible this morning. You came to church. And you could still be lost if you don't know Jesus in a saving way. Such was the case with Judas. Now, though the satanic possession of Judas is bothersome, maybe it's not totally surprising because as we learned about Judas through the gospel accounts, there are these little hints along the way that his heart just wasn't inclined towards Jesus. In other words, he was a hearer, but not a doer. He was an observer, but not a participant. And it's a reminder to us to search our own hearts. Perhaps you could picture Judas's heart like a door with no handle on the outside. Which means that it was opened to Satan from within. And that decision proved disastrous. Notice verses 4 through 6. Look at our text this morning. Judas goes out and the text says, he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So indwelt by Satan, Judas conspires with the religious establishment to betray Jesus so that this troublemaker from Nazareth can be eliminated quietly once and for all. So Passover, 
That's the occasion. Judas, he's the informer. The leaders of Jewry are the plotters and Satan himself is the motivating spirit behind the whole thing. At this, at this point in the story, you kind of feel like things aren't looking good for Jesus. It seems like the cards are stacked against him. But my friends, powers may rage, enemies may advance, but we need to realize that Christ's victory is secure. You see, when the forces of evil do their worst to capture and kill the Savior, God is going to use that very event to destroy those enemies. Paul puts it this way. This is, this, I love this because we're at a point in the story where we're like, uh-oh, but you don't need to say that. You don't need to say that because Christ wins in the end. This is how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. What looks like tragedy, Christ can turn to triumph. I think that's something we need to learn. Like, like we get to these spots where it seems like, wow, the evil one has everything stacked against us. It seems like this is only heading in one direction, and that's doom or disaster. No, Christ is stronger. He is greater. God is sovereign. He can work all things together for good. I was just, you know, I was reviewing my notes this morning, and I was just, I was just thinking about Psalm 2. Are you familiar with Psalm 2? The apostles will actually appeal to Psalm chapter 2 when they retell the story of Christ's crucifixion. So later on in the book of Acts, the apostles will stand up and say, Christ was crucified. But let me tell you, he was in control the whole time. And they quote Psalm 2. This is what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Look at the, the next verse in verse four says this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Oh, Satan, you have a plan for destruction? <laughs> he who sits in the heavens laughs. Yes, Satan has a plan of destruction, but the second half of our text shows us this. But Jesus has a plan of salvation. Satan has a plan of destruction, but Jesus has a plan of salvation. And that's what unfolds from verses 7 to the end of our text this morning, verse number 38. Jesus isn't a helpless victim. He's not the caboose in a train being dragged along in this course of life. He's not passively standing by as things spiral out of control. Satan is trying to work his plan of destruction. But you have to realize that simultaneously, Jesus has a plan of his own. One which turns evil into good. One that takes death and brings life. One that takes what looks like destruction and brings about salvation. So it's almost like, here's, 
here's how this, this text is working. Like in verses one through six, it's almost like the screen is like this, like the camera's zoomed in. You got Judas and you have the religious leaders and you have Satan. And then we get to verse seven and the camera goes like this. And it focuses, it focuses in on Jesus and what's going on with him. Notice verse number seven. Here's Jesus. And while Judas is plotting, Jesus is preparing. And he's preparing for Passover. Verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now all of this is unfolding, remember, during Passover. And this should cause us to pause for a minute. Do you think, I mean, do you really think it's mere coincidence that Jesus is going to be crucified during Passover? I mean, do you think it's happenstance that the one who John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1.29, do you think it's mere happenstance that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is going to be crucified? When all of these other lambs are being slaughtered, do you think that's just happenstance? Do you think it's just chance that all of Israel was gathered together to think about the greatest redemptive act they knew? The Passover. Do you think that's just chance? They're thinking about all of that. And Jesus was going to work the greatest redemptive act of all time. Do you think that's just chance? Do you think it's a fluke that millions of Jews were gathered in Jerusalem to consider the exodus and Jesus, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 31, was going to lead his own exodus? That's what it says in Luke 9, 31. Jesus was about to lead his own exodus. In other words, he was going to bring captives and bring them to liberty. Do you remember? I mean, think. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Nazareth synagogue at the beginning of his ministry? He stands up in the Nazareth synagogue and he says, I came to heal the brokenhearted and set captives free. They're thinking about exodus. Oh, it's when God set the captives free. And Jesus is going to be crucified to set all captives free. Do you think this is just a chance? Or do you think this is part of God's sovereign plan. The apostles, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, the apostles in Acts chapter 4 will put it like this. They're there, these, these apostles, they're praying with other disciples, and this is what it says. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Then listen to this. In their prayer, they said this. To do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. In other words, this isn't chance. Even these enemies are being superintended by God to work out his sovereign plan. So yes, Satan plans destruction. 
He did it for Jesus, and he's done it for people ever since. He's a murderer and a thief. He's been that way from the beginning. But thanks be to God that Jesus has a plan of salvation. And Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Notice how God's plan unfolds in our text this morning. In verses 7 through 13, Jesus tells Peter and John, he says, verse 7, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. He directs them to the part of the city. Do you remember what he says? He says, go to this part of the city and you're going to see a man, what? Carrying a water, a water jar. Now, you're like, okay, they're going to see a man. Well, the reason this was unusual is because normally that's what women would do. Women at that time carried the water jars in their head. And so this would be like a little bit of an anomaly. There's a guy that's walking down the street. He has a water jar in his head. That's the guy. So they're able to identify this guy. And Jesus says, you just go to him, tell him that the master needs the room, and he'll show you. He'll show you this upper room that's available. So look at verse 13. Verse 13. Just says, they went, and they found it, just as he told them, and they prepared Passover. So again, let's just, let's just picture how this is unfolding. You've got Peter and John, and they are the ones who are going to prepare Passover. So which one gets the grill? I'm thinking it's Peter. I mean, I don't know what you think, but I'm, I think it's Peter. And he's going to make younger John go chop up the vegetables and do that, right? I don't know. But you've got to think, here's these two disciples. It's midday, and they have to go purchase a lamb. They take the lamb to the temple area. And at 3 o'clock p.m., a Levite would blow a ram's horn. Peter and John would file into the temple court with tons of other worshipers. They would kill the lamb, skin it, drain its blood into a basin, and a priest would take that and splash it against the base of the altar. Some of the blood would later be smeared on the doorposts, the entrance to this upper room. They would take the meat and it would be roasted, and other elements of the Passover would be prepared. And so, again, I think Peter's at the grill. He's making sure the lamb's just right. And John's in the kitchen, and he's getting the unleavened bread ready, the bitter herbs for the meal prepared, and the two set the table. Can you picture the table? Cups of wine, matzah bread, carouset, bitter herbs, roasted lamb. Just when everything's set, what do you hear in the background? You hear this clomping, because that's what guys do. They clomp. And you hear this clomping of the disciples and Jesus up the steps to this upper room. They're talking and, and, and they're, they're joking and they're making their way to this upper room. And in verses 14 through 16, this is what it says. Look at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table, the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, and it's almost like the room gets quiet. Because Jesus speaks up and he says something. I mean, have you ever been in a spot where someone says something rather emotionally deep? And it kind of stops all of the chatter. Like you've been having this surface conversation and then someone says something from their heart. And you're like, oh, this isn't the time to joke. This is the time to be quiet. This is what Jesus says to them. And, and I just imagine him looking into their eyes. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. The jokes stop, the small conversations stop, and Jesus looks in their eyes with great love. He says, I've really wanted to have this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You can just imagine the room quiet. These, these disciples are looking at their Lord. There's no distractions. There's no other appointments. They're not thinking about what's next. They're just looking at their Lord. And he says, I really have wanted to spend this time with you. And do you know what they feel in that moment? They feel very loved. I mean, if you have someone just like look at you and say, I just really enjoy spending time with you. And that's what he says to these disciples. In other words, I, I love you deeply. He's fully present with them. And I think they felt that. But there's a little confusion, I think, in their hearts. He says, I've really wanted to share this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Suffer? What is he talking about, suffer? Well, they, they start eating and drinking. The disciples are confused. But then it says in verse 19, he takes this bread. So it's almost like, okay, they start eating. They're not sure what the suffering is. But Jesus grabs this unleavened bread. He takes the bread. And when he had given thanks, verse 19, he broke it. Did you hear it break? And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And I just think, I want to pause here for a second. I think we hear those lines whenever we celebrate this, and we think, this is Jesus' body for the world. No. This is my body. It's given for you. When we celebrate the Lord's table, you need to recognize that Jesus' death was for you. Stop extrapolating it out here. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We get to the table and he looks you in the eyes and says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is poured out my body is broken for you. My blood is shed for you. And in that moment, Jesus remade the Passover to help his disciples understand the suffering and death that he was about to endure. So remember, they're scratching their heads. They're not sure, what did he mean? He wants to celebrate the Passover with us, but first he has to suffer. And then he says, listen, my body's gonna be broken for you. My blood is gonna be shed for you. And maybe it was starting to click. At that point, the new covenant was going to be enacted through the death of Jesus. The greatest work of redemption this world has ever known was going to be accomplished through his broken body and his shed blood. And I want to tell you something. What happened that night, even if they didn't understand the full significance of it in the moment, I'm going to tell you something for certain. They never forgot it. There are some things that happen in our lives that touch us so deeply we will never forget. I mean, it's like this event is associated with, associated with something that's so deep that association will never be forgotten. That's what happened in the meal. 
We do this all the time. We remember things by association. So, okay, there's a guy, his name is Carl. You meet him. And you're trying to remember Carl's name, you know? So you think to yourself, his name is Carl. Carl's Jr., hamburgers and a milkshake. Hamburgers and a milkshake. Carl, got it. Next time you see the guy, hamburger and a milkshake. McDonald's, no. Carl, (laughs) Carl's Jr., got it, Carl. We do things with association to try to remember things. I, uh, I was thinking about this concept. I was thinking, I will never forget East West Boulevard in Millersville, Maryland. I'll never forget it. There's a little running trail there. Never forget it. When I think East West Boulevard, I think about a particular thing that happened there. It was sunrise. I mean, it was very early in the morning. The sun was just coming up. I was out on a run. I was like, I had my headphones in. I was like worshiping Jesus with worship music. You know, I mean, things were like awesome. It was a great morning. I've got worship music. I'm exercising. This is great. I'm running down this trail on East West Boulevard, and I come next to some low shrubbery, not thinking anything. I'm just running. When all of a sudden, this flock of doves fly out from underneath the shrubbery right at me. And I want to tell you, I qualified for an Olympic high jump, screamed like a girl, and did jujitsu all at the same time in that one moment. I mean, I was scared to death in that moment. I didn't know if I was going to get hit by a car. I mean, I didn't know what was happening. These doves just like, like all around. I was like, ah! You know, I mean, I just, and then you, and then, you know how it is. After that happens, you look around and you see if there were any other runners that just saw that happen, you know. But I'll never forget East West Boulevard because it's associated with me being scared to death. Or maybe something more serious. I sat in this uh, doctoral class next to a man named David. I, I met him, he was a pastor, he had his Greek New Testament sitting on the table next to me. I asked him about his family, just getting to know him on the first day. And he told me about his kids. He told me the number of children he had. And then he stared at the Greek New Testament. It was like this silence as he looked at the Bible in front of him. He turned to a page, and there was a page there that had tape on it. It had been ripped He said, my four-year-old son came up to my desk while I was studying and grabbed a pencil and stabbed it into this page and yanked it out, just ripped it. And that intrusion made me so mad. He ripped my Greek New Testament, the Bible. He ripped the page right out, just being careless. He said, the next day, my four-year-old was struck by a car. And this is the last thing I have from him. I'm going to tell you something. Whenever that man looked at that Greek New Testament, he remembered his son. I mean, it was associated with his son. I'm going to tell you something. Whenever those disciples looked at the Passover meal, they thought of the Son of God. The one who died for them. And that's precisely what Jesus intended. He says, do this 
in remembrance of me. In other words, your mind shouldn't be out all over here. You shouldn't be thinking about all these other things. You remember me. Well, those disciples would come to understand that in the days, months, and years ahead. But in the moment, things weren't so clear. They ate the unleavened bread, they drank the wine, and sadly, they were quickly distracted. Notice verse number 21. The hand of him who betrays me is determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The disciples begin to look at each other inquisitively. Is it you? Are you the one who's going to betray our Lord? Well, the disciples were bickering about which one of them would be worst. Some of them began to argue about which one of them is best. You see that in verse 24. You're the worst. I am the best. A dispute arose amongst them as to which of them was to be regarded as greatest. Do you see? Like, here's Jesus. I mean, he's pouring out his heart. He's talking about his death. And they're getting distracted talking about who's worst and who's best. Jesus interrupts them. The world stratifies people. He ranks the greatest as those who rule and exercise authority. But I tell you, the leader is the one who serves. Isn't that how I am amongst you? Verses 25 through 27. Now from the Gospel of John, we realize Jesus may have been holding a wash basin and a towel in his hand when he said that. Because he had washed the disciples' feet. I am among you as one who serves. Verse 27, Jesus identified himself as a servant, but he wasn't just any servant. There's an interesting clue in this passage. Jesus is actually identifying himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 53 later on in our text. In verse 37, Isaiah 53, 12 says he will pour out his soul. The suffering servant will pour out his soul to death and be numbered with transgressors. And that's exactly what would happen with Jesus. Well, the meal was coming to a close. And Jesus was going to put a stop to all the bickering and fighting. It says that the disciples were determined to misunderstand him at every point. Okay, guys, just listen to what I have to say. You can almost imagine Jesus saying this. And in verses 31 and 32, he kind of foretells what's going to happen. He looks at Simon and he says, Satan demanded to have all of you. The you there is plural, talking about all the disciples. Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all, plural, you all like wheat. But then he zooms in on Peter but I have prayed for you, singular, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now you have to realize at this point in the story, Judas had already slipped away into the night to betray Jesus. And here the Lord tells Peter that he's gonna deny him. I mean, this evening is taking a sad turn. The events of these coming days are gonna shake up this small band of disciples. It's gonna be terrible and it's going to test their faith. I don't know how Peter felt, but I imagine he was embarrassed, maybe even angry. That the Lord would insinuate that his faith needed prayer? Listen, don't don't get angry at that. 
be thankful for that. There is something beautiful about thinking that Jesus prays for his disciples. There's something beautiful in thinking that Jesus prays for us. That's in John 17. It's in the book of Hebrews. He ever lives to make intercession for us. I think Peter was upset and perhaps even embarrassed. Verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Just imagine a moment of silence. Really, Peter? Verse 34, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. I wonder if Peter's head dropped as he stares at the floor. Jesus speaks up again. Men, things are changing. You need to be ready. The last verses of our text. Once I sent you out without money, without a knapsack, without a spare pair of sandals, and you had everything you needed, right? And they were like, yeah. He says, but now grab your cloak, your money bag, your knapsack, and a sword, because they're coming for me, and they're going to come for you. The disciples are still clueless. They're scratching their head, thinking, where did I put my cloak? Oh, look, we've got two swords. And Jesus is like, enough. He's not saying two swords are enough. He's just saying, enough. Come with me to the Mount of Olives and learn to pray. And that's how our story ends today. The scene closes. And we're left contemplating how Satan has this plan of destruction. But Jesus has a plan of salvation. My friends, the devil's schemes are no match for the wisdom and sovereignty of God. He's able to take what Satan means for evil and turn it for good. And that's precisely what he does. In the next few chapters, what we're going to learn is how Jesus is going to be captured and tortured and eventually crucified. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus willingly takes our curse of sin and death. In exchange, he gives us blessing and forgiveness and life. So today, as we close our service, I want us to remember our loving Savior, the one who took the destruction that Satan planned and turned it on his head. I want us to remember Jesus, whose plan of salvation won the day. His broken body, his shed blood for us. Today, we join with centuries of Christians who have refused to forget the work and the worth of Christ. So as we sup around the Lord's table, let's do this in remembrance of Jesus, the one who recast the bread and the cup to signify his body and his blood. Friends, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says this. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's proclaim it with grateful hearts. Christ died for sinners, and he rose again to offer life to all who believe. As our deacons come to distribute the elements, I'd like to pray and give thanks. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we're like the disciples so often. Maybe just confused or distracted. We're people who get caught up in self-promotion or surface living and we forget your great love for us. So forgive us this morning and help us. Strengthen us against the evil one. Capture our affection and our attention. You are our Passover lamb. You were sacrificed in our place. Our eyes are on you, Lord. We remember you. We give thanks to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.